Hey everyone, this week's episode of the Berman Hour podcast is brought to you by our new sponsors at Hello TV. Hello TV is the ultimate all-inclusive live concert video production service. That means that it's top-notch, it's top quality, and it's turnkey. You work with Hello TV, they have everything covered. Audio, lighting, staging. You're going to look and sound like a million bucks. Now, truth be told, full transparency, I work for Hello TV proudly and loudly because they're awesome and we're awesome. We started doing live streaming concerts. We had a live streaming concert series all throughout most of 2020, and we're going to continue to do that a little bit in 2021. But now we're doing even more, and we're opening up our calendar to people like you who want to spotlight their bands, their brands, or if you're a solo artist, we all know that having crucial content that looks good and sounds good is so paramount, especially during this time where so much live streaming content looks dull, looks shitty, and just looks amateur hour. That is not Hello TV. Hello TV is the best place in Nashville, Tennessee to do your content. So hit us up. Go to hellotv.com, H-E-L-L-O-O-O-T-V.com. Now, yes, we are based in Nashville, but we can and will travel and have traveled. But, you know, there's a pandemic, so we got to be careful about it. But hit us up. Let's see if we can work together. All right, hellotv.com, H-E-L-L-O-O-O-T-V.com. All right, let's get it. Enjoy the pod. Hello and welcome to the Berman Hour podcast. I am your host, Jeff Berman. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope everyone is doing all right, staying warm, staying safe. I'm podcasting right now while looking out my window at a blizzard and I see a row of houses covered in snow it's quite beautiful and the streets are very desolate and almost eerily quiet but you know during a pandemic it's better than having all these fucking jabronis out on the street all the time am I right I'm right I have a great episode for you this week a great podcast I had the chance to interview author Brianne Griebel about her book, Love Doesn't Care If You Forget, Lessons of Love from Alzheimer's and Dementia. Now, Brianne wrote this book around the experiences that she had taking care of her mother as her mother developed Alzheimer's and dementia and the lessons that she learned. And something that we talk about a little bit early on in the pod, but I I do just want to mention is that there's not so much density in this book that it's hard to tackle. And that was something that attracted me to the book. If I'm being honest, I'm not the greatest reader and I tend to prefer shorter books. And this book that Brianne wrote was swift and succinct, but it still packed a very powerful emotional and psychological punch in part because of things that I'm going through in my personal life with members of my family, but also because she's a very good writer and she had a very interesting way of crafting her frame of mind around what she went through. Before we begin the interview, I just want to take this quick moment to thank Brienne for being so open and so candid and so willing to talk about these difficult life events and the difficulties of what her and her family and her mother went through. It's obviously very personal. Uh, That's not lost on me. And we 
tried to kind of tread through what the book was about and what she went through while at the same time, you know, painting a picture that I think is really familiar to a lot of people who are in a situation that Brienne has been in where they have to delineate between being a husband or wife or a son or a daughter and also a caretaker at the same time and the difficulties of that. So I really thank Brienne for opening up. I also want to say that you have to read this book. It's available on paperback. It's also available on an Amazon or Kindle reader, if that's your thing, loveanddementia.com. Also, briangrebel.com will take you to her website as well. Without much further ado, let's get into this great conversation with author Brianne Grebel. Let's get it. A couple of your mentors had, had said that it, it's okay if it's not 300 pages. It doesn't need to be. Did yeah. you ever feel pressure to just pile on more and more personal stories or, or anecdotes about things? You know, Or was your desire and drive to always write something this succinct and, and to the point? Well, first, thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, of course. Hey, thanks for letting me talk about it. I didn't know what that book was going to be. Um, I had tried not just around the topic of my mom and Alzheimer's, but I'd, I'd attempted to write, I don't know, several different books about different things. And I did always get to the intimidation factor of like, I would always get a, you know, a breeze of inspiration and like start writing something and I'd get several pages and go, yeah. And then like, okay, I don't know what else to write though. Cause <laughs> the inspiration left and I had like three, four pages and I'm like, well, that's not a book. And I, I mentioned them in the book, Alexandra Franzen and uh, Lindsay Smith, are these just women who help people, you know, get stuff out into the world? And they, they have a whole program about writing a tiny book, actually. And even just, you know, I got their promotional email that said, you know, write a tiny book. And even that was like, oh, shit, you can write tiny books. <laughs> you can write small ones. They don't have to be 300 pages. And once I kind of wrapped my head around that, I kind of sat down and wrote the outline of like, okay, I knew kind of I wanted to have these the glimpses, like to give people glimpses of the things I'd seen because of my mom and her disease and the journey that we were on. And it just kind of came out of like, there were these five lessons that really stood out to me. Mm-hmm. And then I realized if I'm writing a small book, like this is in essence, I'm writing five long blog posts <laughs> and I right. write those all the time. I write, you know, or like articles and pieces like that. So once I realized that it actually came relatively easy, not that there weren't frustrations and, you know, one chapter in particular gave me a real hard time. It was kind of like just that. It was like, oh, I can just write this small, succinct thing. And I kind of let it be whatever it wanted to be. I didn't worry too much about, should I put more of my personal part in here? Should I take it out? Should I? It was interesting. Like that very much, it came out and it was whatever it wanted to be. (laughs) Yeah. This is kind of a strange comparison, but, uh, well, two things. One, I, I like to look up recipes on the internet. And I, every time I do it, I think, fuck, I, I'm just going to do it in a regular book, just a regular fucking cookbook. Because every time I look up a recipe on a website, I get this fucking, you know, 40 page dissertation about (laughs) where the chef was from and the type of rhubarb at her grandmother's house. And I'm just like, shut the fuck up. I just want the (laughs) recipe. Um, and the other thing, you know, I, I throw love doesn't care if you forget your book in with a, a small pile, but a, a very significant pile of books that I've read recently that have been uh, under 80 pages. One of them was Timothy Snyder's uh, 
21 Lessons on Fascism or whatever, which is just the easiest and most simplistic and direct takedown of, of Trumpism and that whole thing. And then I had a friend named Nate Allen, who I hope to have on the podcast soon as well, who wrote a book called Takeoffs and Landings that was about his journey kind of out of the world that your husband and I are in of, of touring all the time for our own right. endeavors and into a balanced home life that is good for us emotionally and psychologically. And, um, yeah. they, you know, I, I put your book in that category, in that pile, because I have found this very helpful with things that are going on in my life with, uh, you know, people in my family being sick. And I, I really wanted to dive into the book. But before we do that, I want to dive into you a little bit and, and learn a little bit about you. So if I remember correctly, you grew up in Idaho. Is that correct? Yeah, was uh, born okay. and raised. What part of Idaho? Uh, North Idaho. It's a small little town called Kellogg. If anybody is familiar with Northwest U.S. geography, uh, Spokane, Washington is the nearest like real metropolitan area, which is about 85 miles, 90 miles from there. Yeah. Coeur d'Alene, Idaho is a, it's not nearly as big, but, um, you know, and we're, you know, not too far below Canada. So we're, we're up there. <laughs> yeah. You're up there and you're in the middle of nowhere. Um, what was, yeah. <laughs> what was it like to grow up there? What was it like as a teenager? Uh, you know, it was one of those places that I, I knew from a very, like, I knew I wasn't going to stay there. I feel like if you're from a, like, and this is a small town, it's like 2000 people. Um, my high school actually bust in three different small towns because each town was too small to have its own high school. Sure. And it's, I, I kind of, I feel like if you're a small town person, you're, it's, you're, you're going to fall in one of two categories. You're going to be one of those people that was like born, raised and stayed there or born, raised, and then never go back. <laughs> yeah. And, um, I mean, I obviously did go back cause all, almost all of my family is still in that area. So, but it was, it's a good place to grow up in that, you know, it's surrounded by the most gorgeous nature. Like we're in the middle, um, of a kind of an offshoot of the Rocky mountains. Um, it's gorgeous four distinct seasons. So you kind of got all the best of nature, lots of lakes and rivers. And, you know, it was pretty overall wholesome, I guess you yeah. could say. <laughs> sure. Where did you end up going to school? Uh, I went to school in Eastern Oregon University, which is, I mean, it was a, a jump for me. It was a small liberal arts college in a town with like, I think 30,000 people. So it wasn't like, I didn't even go to like college in a large city. I just went like yeah. to a, a large town. And then I graduated to Seattle, Washington, which is a small city. And then I went to Los Angeles. <laughs> so it's kind of, which is a monster. <laughs> yeah. I had this, this progression. <laughs> Fair enough. I, yeah. I kind of did the same thing. You know, this book, which is about your mother's journey in this and concurrently your journey with her, was your mom from Idaho as well? Yeah, my mom and dad were both born and raised uh, in the next small town over, uh, which was Wallace, Idaho. Wow. Born and raised there. Uh, they uh, started dating when they were sophomores in high school. So they were 15 years old when they got wow. together. Yeah. And my grandparents, both of their parents, so all four of my grandparents, they weren't born in... Well, my, my grandmother, my mom's mother, uh, was born and raised in that small area. Wow. So, But they'd all been there for decades and decades. So like... Like my family was really in that town. You know, my dad's dad owned several businesses. You know, the Griebels uh, had a name, especially in Wallace, for a lot of years. And my father owned a bowling alley in the small town. So that's where everybody would go because it's the only like sure. recreational it's, thing to do. Yeah, It's the social center <laughs> no of that whole region. Yeah. 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 So, but yeah, like they, my family, my family, my, my parents were, were of that, the type of born, raised and stayed. <laughs> Did anybody in your family uh, 
resent you or were they across the board proud of you for wanting to get out and, and, you know, move to the big cities? Well, gosh, no, if they resented me, I don't know if anybody would have said anything. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, mean, I'm sure they missed you, of course. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, my mom had, um, my dad was very much, he very much was like, Hey, you, you do whatever is right for you. He's like, this is the life I wanted. I wanted this business. I wanted to stay here. You know, he was always very happy and content with that. And my mom was never an ambitious woman in that sense. She really just wanted to be a mom and have that home life and that stability of her family being around. You know, I just didn't. My brother, you know, also he left and went to college and he lives in Seattle. He never really went back. Is he older or younger? He's older. He's four years, uh, sorry, three years older. But I think my mom had a hard time because she had so many friends who their children stayed somewhat close. And so, you know, she just wanted to be a mom as far as I can tell. She And when your children are gone and that's kind of what your identity is built around, I think she really struggled with that. I don't think she resented me for it, but it was it was hard for her. Right. And she told me before she got too sick, she kind of would say as much. She was, she was always never, she was never trying to make me feel bad, but she was just like, oh, you know, Linda's kids were over and it was, it was just real nice. And I just thought it'd be so nice to have my family closer by. Like she wasn't trying to guilt trip me, but she was, <laughs> but she felt, you know, she was feeling it. Maybe it was the most polite guilt trip yeah, ever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And then my grandmother, actually, she, as I got older and she got older, she was kind of, she's more like, especially when Brian and I, my husband were, uh, kind of first discussing maybe we would leave Los Angeles. And this was before my mom was sick. She would always, well, sure would be nice to have you around here, you know, help with the family. And I'm like, okay, grandma. So let's dive into the book. Something that happens pretty early on is you describe this moment that you feared was that you knew was coming, was that you, you knew your mom at some point was going to forget your name and forget who you were. Mm-hmm. Now, I have this theory, it, uh, not so much a theory, but, you know, if if my wife says to me, you know, I just don't really feel that good mm-hmm. and it's the afternoon, whatever, we deal with it. It's fine. But if I wake up in the middle of the night and my wife says to me, you know, I don't feel so good, it sounds so much more daunting and <laughs> ominous and scary. Mm-hmm. And the moment where you encountered your mom as she was kind of puttering around the house and she was a little startled by you because she didn't know you anymore and didn't know your name. That was in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. Kind of a silly small question, but in the scope of everything, did it feel that much worse because it was then and it wasn't just in broad daylight in the middle of the afternoon? Yeah. So my mom was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's at 62. She was 62 years old and it runs in my mom's, on my mom's side of the family. So I was vaguely aware of what was coming. It was always older, the older generation. So people in their eighties, but I, I did have this from the moment of her diagnosis. And honestly, before then, when we kind of were suspicious that that might be what's going on, just this, you know, brick in my stomach of, you know, what's, is she going to forget who I am? And I think what I've, I've learned, you know, so many things with my mom, but I realize the idea of the worst thing that can happen to us is usually worse than the thing actually happening. Like we, we, our minds do this weird trick on us as we mm-hmm. envision. And not to say that it wasn't awful, but there's just this brick um, of anxiety 
about, you know, what's that going to be like? What's going to happen to our relationship? What's that going to do to us? The first time she forgot me, because it came in stages. It, and this is, you know, true for a lot of people with various dementias. It's, it's not like all of a sudden things disappear. It's like they kind of come and go in these weird waves, and then it gets kind of more and more as they progress. But yeah, she woke up in the middle of the night, which, again, is, is prone. Um, a lot of people with Alzheimer's are prone to do this. They, they call it sundowners. Yeah, it's pretty common. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty common that in the evening, they they just get restless and they can't, you know, you and I can logically kind of think our way some through things. Like you can even go, oh, it's nighttime right now when she's saying that she doesn't feel well. And I've noticed that in nighttime, things feel worse. Like maybe I'll wait until the morning to see what it looks like that, you know, we can kind of logic our way out of certain things. Um, and kind of soothe ourselves that way and go, well, you know, maybe I'm overreacting or maybe it was even a bad dream. You know, we can do all that kind of stuff where you lose that ability through dementia. So she was just wandering the house in the middle of the night and I got up and she was, you know, just so terrified because, um, and she said to me, and I explained this in the book, she said, you know, I asked her what was wrong. And she said, this is my house. She knew she was home. She said, this is my house, but I don't know who you people are. You know, as her daughter, I'm like, okay, this, here it is. This is, <laughs> this is the moment that I was dreading, but I found it so interesting because none of the things that I thought I would be thinking <laughs> in that moment were there. I was, it was just pure, like concern for her and love and compassion. And, and I don't, I, you know, as far as like the nighttime or daytime, I have no idea what that would have been in a different scenario. Sure. Because, you know, she had lots of um, bad times during the daytime, too. But for me, it was actually this extraordinarily magical moment that, you know, I do my best to describe in the book, but words will always fall short of what happened in that moment. And I, the best I can say is that I disappeared and she disappeared. And we were just two human beings and we embraced. And And in that moment, in this strange way, like that's all there was. There wasn't a fear of the future. There wasn't a, a grief over like stuff that we lost. There was just this intense presence. It was like an embrace of like a kindness of strangers. Yeah. It was just nothing, nothing else was important except there was just love. Like, and that's, you know, based on the title, love doesn't care if you forget, you know, like we have this interesting idea of we, we base relationships and our idea of perhaps where love comes from or what it is or what it's capable of on ideas that we don't realize if those ideas get taken away, it actually can reveal something even truer than what you thought was there before. My relationship through with my mother got stronger and richer and deeper and more loving through this disease. I mean, it was plenty, like it came along with plenty of grief and suffering and sadness and pain as well. Don't get me wrong. And I, right. I, I do my best to say that in the book. It's not um, rose-colored glasses, everything is rainbows if you, you know, if you love somebody. It's definitely not that. But yeah, and that's that, that was the first moment that I had that kind of experience with her. I had many other different kinds of experiences, but it set the tone. You know, she was probably about two years into the disease by this point. It set the tone for all the other times I was present with her. Like, it, mm -hmm. it, it kind of said, like, oh, if that was possible... Like if that rich, meaningful experience was possible, even though she didn't really know who I was, she had no comprehension, like it, it gave me an ability to face the other fears and the other struggles that came along with the disease. You know, it's like, oh, underneath all of this, there's still an intense 
deep love that will, it's kind of the cushion underneath the, the suffering. <laughs> Something I noticed throughout the book is that you capitalize the L in the word love yeah. and the G in the word grace. Yeah. What's the significance behind that? Yeah. Um, that was actually, I had done it in several sections intentionally um, because it just, I, I wanted to highlight that there, there is, we have these ideas of love and then there's what's actually true. And to me, it's capital L love. And I had done it in several sections intentionally. And then my editor and publisher pointed out, she's like, I kind of think we should just capitalize the whole way through. Because <laughs> she, she really liked that. She picked up on several places that I was doing it. She's like, it really started, you know, the editor, she was like, it was making me think, oh, why is love capitalized? And it kind of sent her into her own like inquisitiveness uh, about love and what it means and what capital L love could mean. And, and the same with grace. Like to me, grace felt like a presence. And I talk about that um, in that moment when my mom forgot me for the first time. Like I, I, the way I talk about it is like Brienne left and grace came in. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that was something that I was kind of wrestling with through the book is that, you know, you and I have known each other for a number of years at this point. Mm-hmm. And I know you as a good, caring person and, and you, you know, you snagged one of my best friends, so obviously you're, <laughs> you're tops. But I was curious how you developed such innate caregiver skills. Was it just kind of the human necessity that you talk a little bit about later in the book, which we'll get to, or was it something that you had researched and developed and kind of had an understanding of what to do as your mother's, uh, you know, condition was worsening? Yeah, I think it's a it uh, was a combination of things. Um, like I said, it, it did run in my family, so I had an awareness of what was coming a little bit, and I think mm-hmm. that can help. A lot of it was learned on the fly. Like I, uh, one of my mentors asked me a similar question. He's like, "How did you figure out how to do all that for her?" And I said, "Awkwardly with grace." Is <laughs> <laughs> the best I can say because it was it was kind of a lot of trial and error, but I, something in me just knew to be extremely as present as possible for this experience, like not to hide from it, not to wallow in it too much so that I could just be there for her as much as possible. And there was just a, an, in, an intuitiveness that developed with her. Like I could just, you know, if I would say something one particular way, it would, I could see that it affected her in, in and if I worded it a little differently or if, you know, you know, and this is a very common problem, um, getting, the hygiene factor gets really bad um, as people progress. So she would always think she had just taken a shower. So we would have to help her shower, but she never wanted to shower. So it was an interesting, almost, I wouldn't say, oh, game seems a little light, too lighthearted, but it's the best I have for it. It was like an interesting game of like, okay, how do I get her into the bathroom without scaring her? But even that, Brianne, like you're looking at it as a challenge as opposed to a burden. Oh, absolutely. Like I never, I won't say never. Um, I rarely felt a burden of caretaker responsibility. Like, I mean, I did in the heaviness and, you know, there was resentment toward life, you know, for, you know, putting us in this predicament, but it was by far, it was an honor and a privilege to care for her. I'm like, how much of her life did she give up? you know, quote unquote, give up. And she wouldn't have thought that that way, right? You know, like when parents have children, there's a huge sacrifice. Your life drastically changes. Yeah. But there's so much love there that you, of course, you'll do that. It reminded me of a line from a Bright Eyes song where 
it's uh, first a mother bathes her child, then the other way around. Yeah. The scales always find a way to level out. Yeah. It yeah. was it was a lot of that. And it just felt like it was a, a duty of mine. And it did, you know, I, I wrote this piece, <laughs> you know, my mom passed away in July. Uh, and I wrote this piece called The Existential Crisis of a No Longer Needed Caregiver. <laughs> and it's just a real raw, honest piece of like, it awoke something in me, like a greater, a greaterness <laughs> to, you know, it was like a, a challenge that felt like an honor to rise to, you know? And then of course, when she passed away, there's no, there's like, this greatness was called upon. And now I'm like, well, now what do I do? <laughs> Your mom passed away this past summer. Yeah. And you yeah. had been living there. You had moved back by that point. Yeah. I mean, I, we, I changed mine and my husband's entire lives. I was with her, um, Especially we had to move her into a care facility eventually because my father was her 24-7 caregiver. And I, the reason I moved up there back to this tiny little town is because I saw what it was doing to him. You know, it, it, it aged him like 20 years in one year and he was changing and he was, uh, it was just not, not healthy for him. It was really, really bad. So I went up and kind of, we, we traded, we kind of both did part-time and then we moved her into a care facility um, cause I, I had to help my father see, I'm like, even with both of us, this is, this is a lot. It's really, really hard. But between the two of us, um, because at this point she couldn't feed herself and we had limited options for care facilities. And we were really concerned that they, we, we would, you know, sit with her for like two hours to give her a meal. And we just knew the staff in the facility couldn't do that. They just didn't have the manpower. So we would go between my father and I, we would still spend um, on average about six hours a day with her between he and I every single day. And was that difficult for you to kind of switch hats from being caregiver to daughter and back? You know, I heard um, there's this wonderful woman named Judy Cornish who has the Dementia and Alzheimer's Wellbeing Network, who also, speaking of the where did I learn some things, she she's wonderful in helping people kind of understand intuitively how to care for people. And she has some um, yeah. wonderful tips and tricks and things like that. You know, she told me early on, she's like, what's unfortunate is that whatever role you were to the person before a caregiver, you almost have to give that up. So it's either you can be a daughter or a caregiver. You can be a spouse or a caregiver. And it's really hard to be both. I, I understood how that was. Like I saw how my father, he, he had to stop being a husband so that he could be her caregiver. And so one of the reasons I went up there is it's like I wanted to give him that possibility back at least a little bit. But when, especially when that person doesn't know, who, doesn't know you're her daughter, yeah, I mean, a caregiver and someone who loves you exponentially is kind of the role I took. <laughs> like, but daughter wasn't really a thing anymore. I guess it's a stupid question for me to ask. Was it hard? Yeah, of course it's hard. But yeah. you know, you, you you write about it in the book. How you handle it with with grace and uh, with humility at the same time, which I think kind of allows you to open up to your mom in a new way than you had previously. Yeah, it's fascinating the depth that opened up like it's it's so interesting when you like we we create these packages of like okay the context of our relationship is mother daughter and we don't know we're doing this but we have an idea we have an idea of like what what is the role of daughter and we kind of keep ourselves in that container like there are things as a daughter I will or won't talk about you know that I will or won't come to you with you know we don't I don't think we ever really realize that that's what we're doing you know, like this relationship is defined this way. Thus, this is how I have to be inside of the relationship. Well, the disease took all those 
boxes away. And so we kind of got to redefine it, or at least I got to relook at it. And, and I got to show up differently for her than I would have had the disease not been there. You know, like in, in obvious senses, of course, like, you know, having to bathe your parent, <laughs> you wouldn't have to do that if the disease were there. But the experiences that I could have with her because I, neither of us fit inside a particular box anymore were really fascinating and enriching and, you know, painful too. Something that you mentioned that I found very uh, moving and very telling was a life lesson of sorts that I wasn't expecting. And that was that you discovered at some point that you were able to separate her pain from yours. Mm. So that if she was having a bad day, that didn't necessarily make it so that your day had to be bad as well. Yeah. You didn't have to carry the load of, of her her breakdown and, and her uh, her sickness or illness. You could gracefully take it in stride and address it. Mm-hmm. That's that's quite a valuable life lesson in general, not just for this specific situation. Yeah. Um, do you remember when that that frame of, of uh, thought really came to you? Well, I remember when it was most distinct. You know, I, in the book, I kind of talk about these lessons, and in hindsight, they all kind of came in this gradual way that wasn't apparent until it was, and then there are these moments when it became apparent. Yeah. And one of those was. Um, which I describe in the book is my mom was having another really bad episode. And it, it, this particular one, which I was not prepared for was, you know, another late night wandering the house. And she didn't know who she was. She didn't know anything. She didn't know where she was. She didn't know who she was. She actually said that she said, I don't know who I am. And she was just looking at herself as if she was a foreign object. And that was not prepared, <laughs> like absolute terror, she was afraid of her yeah. own body. I was shocked that I was not terrified with her. Like it was, I, I'm like, okay, here's a person. And like, it was almost like it fried my circuits in what ended up being a very good way. Like if I could have logically thought, how do you help somebody who doesn't know who they are? <laughs> like that blew my circuits. I'm like, I just kind of knew like, there is nothing I can do here to make this okay. I can't make her feel better. I can't, there's no words. There's no, I am utterly helpless, but it was like, it wasn't a a daunting feeling. It was a freeing feeling. Like there's nothing I can do. So I'm just going to be here. Like just my presence. I'm going to, I'm going to sit here with her while she has this basically a psychotic break. You know, she was terrified. She eventually calmed down enough that she could lay down and she let me lay down with her. And she eventually just exhausted herself, I think. And then the next morning, because of the dementia, she had no recollection that that had taken place, that she was utterly terrified <laughs> the night before. And I was like, wait a minute. If she's going to have these tremendous experiences but not be long-term affected by the emotional ramifications, I don't think I have to be either. Like if she can, quote unquote, forget about how hard it was, maybe I don't have to tie my sense of well-being to what I think her sense of well-being is. Because hers is going to change, right? It's like I and, and there were days where I couldn't keep up with her mood changes. You know, she would, you know, in one moment be really crying and very depressed and sad, and five minutes later she'd be laughing at something incredibly silly. So, 
it's like, oh, wow, she really helped me see like this can all like the experience can just flow through you. Yeah. And was it in that, you know, you kind of sorry to interrupt, but you you talk about moments where it, you describe how love is a presence where you're just you have to be present in, in the moment, um, which is very Zen <laughs> and, and very pertinent to what you're going through. But at the same time, you're not emotionally submitting to the chaos. You're not drowning in the shit of what you're going through at the moment. Is that kind of the the door that opens that allows you to move forward with her, knowing that in one moment it's good and the next moment it's bad? And because of that, if you allow yourself to get dragged into into those bad moments, then you're, you're just going to be flailing? It was more of, I think, that I saw that every moment passed. So when you, I just kind of saw through her and the experience, if this horrible experience is not going to stay here, then I don't have to be afraid of it being here. I can just let it happen. And that was true of my own grief too. Like I had moments of like the most dramatic movie you could ever imagine, like falling on my knees, screaming in grief, you know, about, um, and these were usually private moments where, and it, there was a cathartic feeling to it as well. There was just this release, like on the floor, sobbing, you know, all kinds of fluids oozing out of my face, cursing the heavens, flipping off God, you know, and there was something really wonderful in, in the background about letting myself have that moment. I wasn't afraid to feel that much grief because I knew once this, once this intense feeling passed, I would be back to, you know, just doing what needed to get done or, you know, letting it pass means I could like laugh at something really silly that she said, you know, later instead of feeling like sad about it. Like I can just be in this moment, even if this moment is good or if this moment is bad, it's not going to stay. So you can kind of enjoy the beauty while it's there and let the, the shit happen while it's there. And in that way, you just kind of, there's a rhythm that we kind of fell into together that I now take with me out in life. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's something that is resounding throughout the book is that these lessons that you learn in this episode of your life, so to speak, are valuable to how you're going to live the rest of your life. Now, there was something that I put a star next to in the book that kind of speaks to this. And it was on the heels of a, of a bad interaction where your mom was unknowingly rather cruel to you. Mm -hmm. And you started to understand that, you know, you were no longer, a, you no longer felt like you needed to avoid those intense emotional moments because you knew that they would pass. And a line that, that I wrote a star next to you was the gift of seeing that carried me through. That is how I could be hurt by her cruelty this morning and also okay with it. Mm. Yeah. As you're doing this, you're developing skills as a caregiver because that's not your uh, initial area of expertise, mm -hmm. right? How did it balance out with other members of your family and was there difficulty as this was happening in terms of your relationships with other members of your family, particularly your, your brother and your father. Um, and if that's too personal, you do not have to answer it. <laughs> uh, you know, I had my own reconciling with myself um, 
about the way that other people's uh, other people <laughs> um, could show up for her. And I had to just realize that we all have our own capacity um, for what we can be with. And for reasons I don't truly understand, I have a large capacity to sit with difficulty. Uh, and my father, which I can't, you know, I can't put myself in his shoes. He's, you know, you and I were talking, um, about, oh no, I mentioned this. I thought we was before we hit record, but no, I mentioned this. They've been together since they were 15, married for well over 40 years. I can't imagine like as you know, what, whatever my experience was, my father had a different experience with it. And my father, you know, based on his upbringing and all kinds of things, had a way to show up to difficult situations that was different than mine. My father, you know, his was just to take control of what you can take control of and put all your eggs in that basket. So my father took amazing physical care of her. Like he, you know, he started doing all the cooking, all the cleaning, you know, he learned, he figured out how to get her dressed and get her bathed and brush her teeth and feed her, you know, like he showed up excellently for there. He didn't, I don't think this is my interpretation. I don't like having to be a completely different emotional person for her was a challenge. <laughs> and so he would just go back yeah. to like relying on, you know, did I get, did I get her washed? Did I get her bathed? Did I get her fed? That's about all I can handle today. <laughs> and I, at first, like I had a, a problem. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. I had a problem with like, dad, no, like just sit with her, you know, try to talk with her. And he's like, I don't know what to say. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, you know, and my, my brother, you know, bless his heart. He was, you know, he's a different city, different situation. He couldn't uproot his life and move there. So, but he was the kind of guy he's like, he, I don't think he knew what kind of initiative to take, but if you asked him to do anything, he'd do it. He just kind of like, point me in a direction, I'll do it. <laughs> and, you know, through the experience, I actually became much closer with my father than I had previous to this. Like growing up, I was much closer with my mother than my father. I, I had a good relationship with both of them, but my father worked all the time. Through this, like my father and I had to become a different kind of team. So we had to form a different kind of communication. We, and I had to develop these skills that we hadn't developed in my youth. And in that way, it kind of, I think we made a very good team because there were times when it was, it was too tough for me. You know, I remember this one time I was trying to bathe her and she was in this terror mode and I don't know what she thought I was doing, but she was screaming for help. She just thought I was attacking her. And it was too much for me that day. Like, I'm just sitting here trying to, to help this woman who's, you know, had an incontinence accident. She has to be bathed. There's no option here. And she thinks I'm some stranger trying to attack her or, or something. I don't know. And I couldn't. I broke down. I couldn't do wow. anything. And my dad, you know, pro at just suck, sucking his emotions away. <laughs> like He's like, it's okay. I got this. You go ahead. You got in the living room. And, you know, he just did his thing. So, you know, it, it was an interesting... I feel like the, the family kind of came together in all the best ways that each of us could, you know? Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. <laughs> this is really nice. I actually um, took a break from talking about it for several months because, you know, I wrote the book last year, came out, I was talking about it a whole lot, and I didn't realize I had to stop talking about it for a while. <laughs> and this is probably, I think this is the first time I've really had an in-depth conversation about the experience for several months. Um, and it was, it was nice. Yeah, I guess. And that's something I wanted to end on was whether the book itself has a 
your relationship to the book is now different since yeah. your mother passed away. Yeah, I would probably write a different one now. And it's to another part of your question. I may write something else about it in the future. I don't, I, I don't see it yet. I'm not sure what it might be, but I could see writing kind of, um, you know, the process of grief and losing somebody um, with this disease and, and how that's different than the grief you feel while you're losing them while they're alive. Could be in the, in the future, but we'll, we'll see what inspiration brings me. <laughs> yeah, well, finding uh, inspiration and beauty in, in such dark times is uh, not an easy thing to do, but I think that you, you did so gracefully. I think your book will be a tremendous help to people for anybody who picks it up and reads it. So all the credit to you and thank you. That was uh, best cool. of luck with the future projects. Thanks so much, Jeff. And there you have it. Thanks again for tuning into the Berman Hour podcast. If you haven't yet, please rate, review, and subscribe to the Berman Hour podcast. Wherever you listen to podcasts, wherever you find podcasts, it's incredibly helpful for the pod. Also, thanks to our sponsors, Hello TV. Visit H-E-L-L-O-O-O-T-V.com if you are in need of video production service and content. And if you're not, just go to hellotv.com. That's H-E-L-L-O-O-O-T-V.com and watch some great live streaming concerts that they've done. They're awesome. Thanks again to Brienne Griebel. You can get her book at loveanddementia.com. And I'll see you all next week. All right, let's get it.